Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back. It's been a couple weeks. Some some big changes um, have happened in my life. I had a kid. Andrea had a kid. I was there. Um, our first son, uh, Titus. We named him Titus. Um, so we haven't been able to do a podcast because... We've been being parents and learning how to take care of a kid. Um, and so I guess that kind of fits perfectly into what we're going to talk about today, um, which is the, the overall question is, how should we parent? How should Christians parent? Um, I got a, a text from Christina Sekatowski a while back, um, and she's been on this podcast before. Uh, she's just somebody who goes to our church. Uh, she said that she... Wanted to Nick to do a podcast, uh, us do a podcast on um, parenting, how to parent specifically at each of the different developmental stages of children. She said, millennials need help parenting or we will all raise coddled, undisciplined children, which I liked the way that she that she said that because I think that that's true. But I I think that like, I don't think it's just millennials. I think that it's all the generations have had this this for the past I don't know, 50, 60 years had this coddle, a slow coddling of, of children. So we're going to talk about how should we parent. Um, Nick, I know you usually have things to say right out of the gate. So do you have anything you want to say to just kick it off? Um, yes, I do. Um, one of the things we say a lot is that true worldly truths tend to be half truths, but that means that they're half right. And so the increase in attention, especially since the 1960s, on the feelings of children um, is in some way positive in that there were lots of homes that existed in the 50s and before where how kids felt didn't seem to matter at all. Um, It was much harder to, to care. I mean, you can't really care about individual children's feelings if you have more than, say, four of them. You know, once you get past about two or three, you just can't be all that concerned with everybody's feelings. Like, just like I have on my staff team, you know, when I had two people on my staff, I was much more concerned with their feelings than when I have 27. Mm-hmm. So some of it's just a, an issue. Like in the 1960s, we got a birth control pill. When we got a birth control pill and then backed it up with abortion, birth rates dropped precipitously. Now people have two children for the most part or less sometimes, or yeah. just barely more. And so like this idea that you could attend to the emotional well-being of your children all the time first became possible in human history, right? So some of it has to do with structures more than our stupid philosophies. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So the, the, the incredible decrease in family size um, with mm-hmm. the, the, the strong increase in psychological education, especially among moms. Yeah. And with an enormous growth of books published on the subject of parenting, mm-hmm. which were almost all ordered around the, the emotional well-being of children and the growth of what later became called the self-esteem movement. Yeah. Um, do, and, and do, you, so, do you want – go ahead. Sorry. So the flagship of that was to move away from spanking kids as your main form of discipline. But mainly it was this idea of maximizing children's self-esteem because the higher someone's self-esteem is – the better they will behave in every area of life. The more successful they'll be, the more money they'll make, the more the more stable their marriage will be, the, the better everything will be. Is and that it, the theory? Or is that, that was the like theory of the self-esteem movement. Okay. It turns out that's, that's false. 
Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, now, it, now there is some truth to it. There are ways in which certain kinds of self-regard that are positive do right. help us in life. That's right. true. So people who have internalized self-hatred, who like they hate themselves, people like that really struggle in a lot of important areas of their life. That's true. Mm-hmm. However, it's also true that self-esteem generally, A, can't be built by just telling kids they're fantastic. So the main yeah. thing we tried to do by making child-centered homes in which we attended to children's feelings and in which we told them they were fantastic in ways that they yet weren't mm-hmm. doesn't produce good self-esteem. It hardly mm-hmm. produces self-esteem at all. What happens is children start to regard adults as liars. Yeah. Right? So we found two, two things we found out after about 45 years of research. One was that self-esteem esteem tracks with um, successes, not praise. So if you took a junior in high school and you measured their self-esteem, it would track more closely with their success as a sophomore than whether or not you told them they were going to be fantastic as a junior. Right? The kids recognize they are having success or not. And then their self-esteem is regulated based on their own interpretation of how they're interacting with the world. I mean, yeah, this is the easy, I mean, one, one easy example of this is in sports, you know, I mean, when, when you would get a, I mean, I, I grew up not yet in the participation trophy award, like generation. I feel like that's the younger kids. Now they all get participation awards, but sometimes we would get participation awards. It'd be like, you got 25th place. Good job. And and I was like, you never felt good about that. And even if people said, well, you tried really hard, you did such a good job, you always felt like kind of crappy. But if you won the championship, yeah, you felt great about that because you won something. Right. And so, that, I mean, that's kind of right. what you're saying. And that's really transparent in areas of direct competition, mm-hmm. right? Like young men are going to try start liking girls and making advances at them at some level in like fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And wow. whether or not they get received or rebuffed, they're going to pick up a lot of data real quick and it's going to affect their self-image a lot. Yeah. It just is what it is, you know? Yeah. And that's the way human beings function. And so there was this movement for a long time that we would just tell kids they're fantastic. And then, we, and then we're also not punitive towards them in their misbehavior because we don't yeah. want them to feel bad about themselves. So you don't say you're being an idiot. Stop mm-hmm. doing that. You're a jerk. You can't say that to a kid because you're labeling them as a jerk. They're going to internalize that and, and hate themselves. Yeah. Turns out that's not really how self-hatred comes about. It's also not how self-esteem is built. So the whole system was kind yeah. of bankrupt. The other problem with self-esteem is that self, there's different kinds of self-esteem and which kind you have is very important. Hmm. The, because what they found was that um, self-esteem was very high among things, people like sociopaths, bullies, oh. criminals, you know, people who just like beat other people up and attack other people for fun. They had yeah. very high self images oftentimes. Now, sometimes yeah. they didn't, but a lot did. And it turns is, out that there's... Are you, when you say self images, what I'm thinking of right now is a better way to describe what you're saying is narcissism. They're narcissistic. Yeah. And not, yeah, nar- not narcissism yeah. is a form of self-regard. Self-regard. Okay. Yeah. So and it's, this and it's like a broken kind of high self-esteem. Yeah. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, like, how do you get, so, right? So th- there is a kind of self-esteem where you like know who you are as a person, Yeah, but you, you it's, but it's humble. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. One, one way to say it is that self-confidence and self-esteem don't actually go together. Right. 
right? right. And like, at, you know, at, like, I was the second child in the family. My mom's in a, uh, a teacher and she's Italian. And so like I was basically worshipped since the day I was born. And so there were a lot of ways as a young man that I acted really arrogantly that were actually pretty negative behaviors. Yeah. But because my mom was always kind of communicating to me that I was like not good enough in my grades, because when it came to grades, she knew some grades got you into college, some didn't. So when it came to my grades, she was an immigrant. When it came to like other things, she was like a yeah. self-esteem mom, right? And so it turned out that like I really internalized my, my sense of failure and that kind of led to low self-regard in certain ways. But like it wasn't because people didn't say I was fantastic. I mean, she basically worshipped me. And been yeah. very child-centered, done everything for me and told me I was fantastic and smart and all those things. But I still yeah. internalized self-hatred because I wasn't a success with the girls because I didn't hit puberty until I was like a junior in high school, right? And I didn't yeah. I didn't have the kind of success in sports I was looking for, especially in basketball. And I didn't have good grades. I was ADD kid and I was all over the place and really impulsive. You didn't you have know? good grades? No, not till college. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. What what were like like what was your GPA? I went from about like a eighty two percent GPA to like a four eight something my first semester in right. college. Eighty two percent would be like a a little bit above a three three point right? Yeah, like a B, just a B average. Yeah. Look, that I mean, when uh, you you and me have different ideas of what it's like to not be good at your grades. <laughs> if I would have had 82%, that would have been great. And yeah. I was high school, I was getting like D's and F's. So yeah, yeah, but there's a certain class of kids that are regarded as quote, good students. And oh, they, yeah. don't, they yeah. don't get 82s, you know? Yeah. Right. 82s are terrible for them. And both yeah. my parents were teachers, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, the, okay. So, the, so the point is, is that for like 50, almost 50 years, maybe even more, in fact, it's still true now. There is still this clinging on to this self-esteem movement ideology. And part of the reason for that is, is that there are some things in the self-esteem movement that are very true. Um, there, was a, there was a book published by, uh, I'll bring it up here in just a second. But like one of the first books published in the self-esteem movement, I went back and listened to, to it because I wanted to know if the self-esteem movement was rotten from its core at the very beginning. Or if like it was one of those deals where when things got popularized, whoops. When things got popularized, they went bad. So one of the earliest books was – one of the earliest self-esteem public psychologists was a guy named Nathaniel Brandon. His B-R-A-N-D-E-N. You've mentioned And one of his books is called Honoring the Self. So I listened to this book because I wanted to know if it was just a bunch of bullcrap right from the beginning. Actually, it's a pretty good book. I was actually pretty happy with what he said. And and basically his argument is if you can't trust yourself – like if you go through life as a perceiving creature and, but you tell yourself you're too weak and too stupid and too incapable of believing your own eyes, you won't be able to function well in life and you'll just get ruined. So like if, if you can, if somebody sexually abuses you and you can't believe your own eyes, your own feelings and like mm-hmm. say, wait, that's wrong. That was wrong. Right. Yeah. You just all like, or, or like somebody says, Hey, good job. But you, you can't trust anybody's perception. You Right. right? Then, right. So he, his argument is basically, you have to know what you are as a self and you have to honor the fact that you're a self. You're not a cipher, a hole, or like a picture for other people to pour their desires into. You are a self. You occupy space in the world. He's like, and you got to do that. Now, the way he talked about that is like, he was like, he used moral categories and, and intellectual categories and learning categories and even some spiritual categories. And so I listened to that book. I was like, you know what? I mean, that's not as theological as I would say it, but that's pretty good. Right. Well, the that's a lot of these is, 
if I feel maybe I'm getting ahead of it, but that is the exact opposite of what it's of what the self esteem movement right. has produced. Right, and that's See, this, interesting. What, yeah, one of the things that you always have to ask is when an intellectual movement is happening, is it the like smart version of this, or is it how the thing is getting popularized? Because what happens is, is that people have interesting ideas and then journalists go and report on those ideas. And they, have and they don't no have idea. a good understanding of what the idea is. Right. Because they're going to write a story yeah. on it. And then in 20 minutes, they're going to go write a story on something right. else. They, exactly. they don't, I mean, they don't have time to get a doctorate in the thing. And so the nature of media itself is yeah. that you, you're, you, you're trying to mediate the work of experts as a non-expert. And you're trying right. to encapsulate it in like 500 words. And what it's, happens is, is that these yeah. things, these views become zombies. Right. And so what happened with self-esteem is as it got mediated into like undergraduate teacher programs and into like popular parenting books, it, it just didn't hold its integrity. And you right. got this basically the stupid movement where we, we basically said, if we don't discipline children and we tell them they're fantastic in every way from the moment that they're born, they'll grow up to be self-confident and successful in everything, which right. common sense tells you is ridiculous from the first, because right. almost every great thing in human life, you have to practice and fail and practice and fail and practice and right. fail and recognize that you're failing so that you can do it better. Right. So, okay. So how, my question then about the millennial generation, it's, if, it, it feels like this is from the gen Xers to the millennials, there has been, it feels to me like there's been a jump or an acceleration of this self-esteem movement because I feel mm -hmm. like the Gen Xers kind of raised their kids a little bit with, with some more discipline, more hard work yeah. and whatever. And then it feels like the millennials just took a hard turn. And now the millennials are to are all in on the self-esteem movement. It feels like it didn't have a gradual progression. Like it feels like it kind of just went okay, we're going to raise, raise our kids a certain way with Gen Xers and then yeah. millennials just rebelled against them. And now they're, now they're coddling their kids and doing all these te like terrible things to their kids. Yeah. What, what, what happened with the millennials? Is there a specific yeah. thing that's special about that? That. Okay. Okay. So let people? me, okay. Let me theorize on this, but like there's obviously there's probably other theories. Okay. Yeah. So remember that millennials and Gen Xers were both raised by boomers. If you split that's the true. boomer generation into early boomers and what were what were called for a while busters, which is the second half of the boomer generation, which is okay. slightly different in certain ways because they they are from they were raised by builders, but not in the same austerity. Okay. Okay. And so and they were late to the hippie movement. Yeah. Right. So they're having kids in the 70s. They're, like the, the boomers are right. having their kids in the 70s, which is a time of high inflation rates. The economy is not doing well. The Iran-Contra is happening. Carter's president, right? And then the busters are having their kids like in the 80s and 90s, which is economically just completely different. It's after the Reagan revival. There's lots of extra money. Yeah. American housing sizes are getting larger. Schooling is changing. Just everybody's yeah. richer. So the, you've got right. all these yuppie boomers raising kids, right? So millennials right. – So. So I was raised in the self-esteem by like a self-esteem generation of boomers. But right. see, in my generation, Gen X, some Gen Xers in, like drank it in and some were like, this is freaking stupid. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's some that drank it in and then they turn around and they raise their kids with that same self-esteem movement stuff. And there's some who were raised with it and they were like, this is a recipe for failure and misery. And so they changed it. And so like, I would consider myself among that group. I was raised in the self-esteem generation. I just, I, I was like, this is so dumb. Probably because I read the Bible. 
Partly because yeah. I thought it w- it created misery, and also it frankly didn't help me have a higher self esteem. Right, and I didn't know why. It basically it seemed like it was giving me more self esteem in all the worst ways I could have self regard, and it wasn't helpful in the ways where I needed good self regard and to honor the self. Did and you because I, I like, didn't know that stuff. Yeah did you did you feel like you hated adults or like I mean did you feel like you one no but you, I thought I did think they were liars. Yeah, I thought that they thought I was stupid. Yeah, and they were yeah, liars. Yeah. 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 Now yeah, I'm above I, average intelligence. Maybe not every kid picked up on that, but man, it sure seemed obvious. No, I, I, I don't. I think that every kid does. Maybe not consciously pick up on it, but I, I haven't met somebody my age that hasn't. Well, because your peers tell you you're stupid, it. right? Your, right. your pa- the adults go, "Oh, you're such a smart kid," and then you right. go around your peers, and your peers are like, "You're stupid," and your your yeah. kids like, "Oh, you're so beautiful," right. and then you ask right. a girl out, and she's like, "No, thank you." I mean, it's like, and so you end up being like, okay, you adults either have no perception of reality, so I shouldn't listen to you at all. So you get this like massive youth movement where they don't listen to adults, right? Because the adults lie to you because you you don't want to believe that your parents are just liars. So you're like, well, they just don't get it, right? And every youth is already prone to think that their parents don't get it. If as a parent, because of some psychological belief, you're lying to your kids to try to make them feel better because you believe that that's good parenting, but your kid actually finds out you're full of crap. What they take from that is either that you're a liar or you don't get it or you're both because you're lying because you don't get you're it. A, so you're an idiot. A lying idiot. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, well, okay. So th- this is happening though. And this is what's fr- been frustrating to okay, me. Okay. So here's why I, why I think it's happening right now. Yeah. Because in the late nineties already, we were seeing psychological studies. Um, um, Jay Baumeister is the person most famous. Like if you if you Google Jay Baumeister and self-esteem, there's a PDF file that will come up and he, it go, he goes over a good bit of the data on this. And he just says, look, it doesn't work. And we've known that. The problem is, is that the school systems have built in so many administrators now basically to police this stuff who make six-figure salaries. It is very hard to turn that around. But what happened within the counseling sector is as self-esteem waned, like we could make our kids so happy if we just give them self-esteem. What happened is, is that waned, something else got popular, and that was trauma. The idea that like a profoundly negative thing will happen to your kid if you don't basically do the same self-esteem stuff. Focus right. your whole family around their emotions. Make your children the center of your family's affairs. Pay lots of attention to them. Make sure mom and dad are both personally playing with the child. Don't make them feel bad when you discipline them. Discipline them by talking to them and telling them why, but not by punishing them. Certainly don't which, spank which, them or hit them like, in any way, yeah. etc. Like in the this is another one. Like in, we talked about trauma in the last podcast with Jill. Right. Um, this is another term then that has been taken. Um, and kind of like re like, like the original, probably the original trauma when, when trauma started to surface as this, probably after world war two, at some point when they're thinking through post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, and then they, and they used to call it shell shock and now, and then they, I think this. You can tell me if I'm wrong here, but psychologists were trying to figure this all out and then trauma comes to the surface. And that's kind of the word that we use to describe that stuff. And that's all great and good. And that that makes sense. But I feel like and this is my issue in the the last podcast was that 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 word trauma now has been kind of just generalized and used for any time anything bad happens to anybody throughout their entire life. And this might kind of be to your point that like 
in this new trauma, the age of trauma, I don't know what, what we call this age, the age of trauma where everybody has gone, everybody says that if their parents spanked them or yelled at them or did something mean to them, that they went through a traumatic experience. What I, what, what I'm, what I think is happening with people my age when they say, oh, I was traumatized as a kid, I think that they're equating it to like to a warlike trauma because they don't have any idea of how to um, categorize or how to how to create different degrees of trauma in their heads. Mm -hmm. And so they're just saying trauma is trauma is trauma. Whether you go to war for five years to see all your buddies die or your parents spank you, it's all trauma and it all does the same thing to you. And so I talk to people my age and they're saying this stuff. and, And then I'm like, Gosh, th- like how do you redefine trauma while allowing it to continue to keep its original meaning that is necessary for understanding the, the human psychology and right. not and not affirm a young person's uh, delusion that their parents grounding them for from their phone was traumatic. Like right. it's confusing. I, I don't Yeah, it is it is confusing. Um the word trauma is used more broadly but in, in your in your right in the sense that like there's there's at least four ways the word is used right there's like just the general word for a hurt mm-hmm. right there's right. the more academic ways psychologists use the term if they're being careful which is um that which creates like a PTSD what you're what you're talking about like event based trauma so you see your gear buddy turned into pink mist in front of you with a bomb while you're at war. And like, like you remember it, you have cold sweats, you wake up with nightmares, you have PTSD, right? There's also what's sometimes called developmental trauma, which is Mm -hmm. a series of things happen in your life, leaving a profound psychological effect and hurt on you. Like, like if your parents an alcoholic and they just neglect you terribly, right? That's developmental trauma. You you acquired a different way. Uh, Reactive attachment disorder. Do you know what that is? Right. Yes. Correct. That's like a prime example. Almost every adopted kid has that. Has that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. there's there's one adopt adoption training where one of the first things they say is every child, if you adopt a child, you're adopting a brain damaged child. And what they mean by right. that is in terms right. of emotional and personal attachment, there's yeah. there's something that will always happen in the process of adoption that you can't, yeah. you can, you can help it, you can alleviate it, you can ameliorate it, but you can't stop it from, you can't stop the hurt from happening. Yeah. Right. And earlier, so, I think the earlier you adopt, probably the less chance of. Hopefully. Brain. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So there's developmental trauma, right? Sometimes developmental traumas also have punctuated event traumas. So like if you have a really neglectful father and then he falls asleep with a cigarette in his mouth and the house burns down and you're in it and you just barely survive, right? You might have an event-based trauma from the fire, but you might have right. also internalized developmental trauma, right? So so there's like very real, like in, in a church, I work with kids, teenagers and adults all the time that have clinical trauma. And by trauma, here's, yeah. here's how it's defined. A event in the, a, the, the disassociative storage of an event in the past in such a way as to create an involuntary physiological or psychological event in the present in reaction to something that triggers it. Okay. So right. yeah. um, now- where that line ends can be a little weird. So, for right. example, if a young if a young girl grows up and she's always mistreated by the men in authority in her life, and then right. she goes to work for a person like me, and then I say, hey, this thing you did, it's not good enough. And she reacts really defensively, right? What is that? Is that trauma? Right. right. Well, that's how my we question. How you just define trauma is, as far as I know, also how you would define like existing and living. I, I can't. Mm-hmm. Everything that I respond to 
in some way, every way that I respond to things right now, in some ways, yes. is compounded off of all of the different things that happened to me in the past that I've responded to in similar and various different ways all throughout right. time and space. Oh, absolutely. And so That's it's like, is, is right. everything trauma all the time? Right. That's so a, a trauma specialist would probably say in response to that, um, a, a traumatic reaction is going to be, by definition, a disproportionate response to something in the present. Who so you tell your wife you like didn't like what she made for dinner, right? Yeah. And she yeah. like flips out screaming at you, right? And you're like, okay, like I, I get maybe you didn't like what I said, but this is weird, right? right? Yeah. That's yeah. that's a traumatic response. If she just says, go, yeah. sc go screw yourself, you know, like that might that's be more than you think is appropriate, but it's not right. like way disproportionate, right? So right. like, so people who freeze up or their heart rate goes to 120 in two minutes because you said something yeah. that they didn't like, you, like that disproportionate. So, so like what a psychologist right. is trying to deal with trauma, they're looking at an event that happened in the half past that is disassociated, meaning it's not properly integrated into your, so like some of the stuff you respond to because of what happened in the past, mm -hmm. it is integrated into your personality. Yeah. You are, you are doing that because that's what you want to do. That's what you, your, yourself says is the right response right. based on your experiences in the past. That's different than your mind, not knowing yeah. to do with an event that's really hurting you. And it just puts it somewhere nonverbal in your brain. And then it just comes out in ways that you don't understand and can't mm -hmm. explain. That's disassociation. Yeah. That disassociation, when it reveals itself in the present event, will create a disproportionate response. Does that make response. sense? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, Here's the thing. A lot of people will use trauma, the word trauma, when they're actually referring to other psychological ailments like self-hatred and internalized sense of shame and those sorts of things. And those aren't necessarily trauma, but they can be related to your past and right. so on. But you're right. People use that word. Now, the, the thing is, is that since the 1960s, at least, what has been ingrained in the minds of parents is your child is not this res highly resilient organism, but this incredibly fragile creature. Yeah. Psychologically speaking. So yeah. that if you don't do everything right, you're going to break your child and they're going to suck as an adult. Right. And so basically right. parents have this, they enter into parenting with this terror that they have this like highly brittle glass object that if anything touches it, it's going to break and it terrifies them. And so right. the result is highly protective parenting, not free range kids. Right. As opposed to saying this is a highly resilient creature that you have, as long as you love this child so that they feel secure in their relationship with you, they can then go out in an exploratory way into the world, get all kinds of bumps, bruises, kicks, cuts, right, and be fine and actually and fine, develop yeah. really well. And the result of this is a creature that's much more difficult to traumatize because the, the right. child grows up with an appropriate amount of yeah. sensitivity and insensitivity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that if somebody says you're a jerk they go you're a jerk instead of like oh my gosh i'm a jerk they hate me yeah. right because part of yeah. trauma is sure. the relative nature of your resiliency right yeah. if you're not a resilient person and you get attacked in like a, on a level of 3 on a scale of 1 to 10 that might affect you traumatically whereas another right. highly resilient person or with a very insensitive temperament and, could get hit with a and, seven and not be traumatized. Right. But, and for clarity, people will say that maybe not, maybe people will hear resiliency as confront, confrontational. Mm -hmm. And, and then they'll be like, well, 
like my personality i'm not like i'm not like confrontational that's resiliency yeah. i don't do that but it's like that's not yeah. a personality trait that's a that's a that's character that's something that you can develop over everybody I mean, yes some, that's right some people can everybody be better can develop naturally right 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 I mean, everybody can, can like develop more resiliency but there right. are temperaments that are more sensitive than others mm-hmm. so like you don't right. want to make you don't want to like make your average girl, frankly, and your average boy, a boy is going to have a much less on average, like distributionally, a much less sensitive temperament than your average girl. Our goal right. is not to make them equally sensitive or equally insensitive, right? but we are going to work in, in raising both that little boy and that little girl to make them highly resilient. We want, we right. want every human being to be highly resilient, right? What right. happens is, is that when you focus on victimization and trauma, you focus on the fragility of human beings mm-hmm. and you don't focus also on the resiliency of human beings, what you end up getting is parents who are afraid their child are going to get hurt. They become overprotective. They don't lead them towards resiliency and experience. They become unconscious, unconnected, yeah. unresilient, incompetent uh, adolescents. They then have bad experiences. Those inter- They internalize that they are personal failures and then they become less adventurous. They don't develop as adults and so on, right? And then you get this like 24-year-old who can't date a girl, is terrified of their boss, doesn't want to get a job, can't finish school and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Now, some of those yeah. kids literally have mental health problems that we didn't create. A mm-hmm. big portion of them have mental health problems we did create that we didn't have right. to, right? And some of them don't have mental health problems. And they need to like read a Jordan Peterson book, do some pushups, make their bed and do the next yeah. good thing. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, as my, a parent my... who has a disabled child, a child with a, with a very significant mental illness and two moderately normal children, mm-hmm. I've been through the whole gamut of this. And so I've seen parent-based parenting hurt a mentally mm-hmm. challenged child because we didn't recognize it soon enough. But I've also seen it incredibly empower my other three children, including my disabled child, mm-hmm. which we can get into as parenting styles. But anyway, yeah. that whole backdrop of the children are fragile, that they're easily traumatized, that you have to puff up their self-esteem, that, that children's feelings are the most important part of parenting. There is some truth in that. But as a philosophical, cultural mythology of parenting – it is ruining children and destroying marriages. It's also confusing because it's like I would, I would, I would guess that the this self esteem movement or this sensitive ch- this this philosophy of children being sensitive and 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 um, weak and, and I mean children I mean, are sensitive. Children are sensitive. No, no, no. The question is: they is are. the most important thing in parenting to attend to your child's feelings? Is that the most important thing? And well, I, and that, I would say no. That's that confusing. Is an important thing. And women will emphasize it more than men. Yes, yes. But and that psychology, fun. how did that psychology come out of the philosophy of Dar- Darwinian, Dar- Darwinianism? Dar- I don't know how to say it. I'm not Darwinism. sure it No, I, I don't how, think it, Where else would it come out of? It's like everybody in academia subscribes to, to evolution. If it's the survival of the fittest, wouldn't you want to create the most resilient human beings that you possibly could rather than creating right. these weak – like they're unable to deal with everything around them. Like, like I would, I would think that actually what we would be creating is a bunch of stoics rather than a bunch of these, right. pa- the parenting styles wouldn't be, I, this just feels backwards. No, I think that's correct. Right. I don't, I don't think that if you just looked at Darwinian ideology, that what you would get was 
this kind of idea. I know I think it's part of, I think, no, and that's why if you look at a lot of people writing today, oftentimes atheistic evolutionary biologists and psychologists agree with conservative Christians more and liberal Christians and progressives agree more because partly because progressivism is not rooted mainly in Darwinianism. It's, it is the merging of critical theories with a zombified Christian ethic. Like the ethics in progressivism is a twisted Christian ethic. That's where they got those ethics from. They got it from Christianity because Christianity created Europe and therefore America. That's true. And so basically you have this. So, so this idea that like, we got to take care of the weak that came from Christianity, which came from Judaism. Like if you go back and look at the Greeks and the Romans, they thought if you were strong, you were on God's side and the weak were just like the refuse of the world. Yeah. Right. Christianity taught that God was more likely to be on the slave side and more and the poor side. They right. got that from us, right? What they didn't get was all the rest of our ethics because critical theory oh, became the – critical theories that came from more Marxism, Nietzsche, and the yeah. other postmodern philosophers as in the romantics, frankly. So like if you, if you say like what kind of parenting model is this like self-esteem, trauma-based, sensitivity to emotions mean everything. Well, emotions mean everything. That's all you have to say. It's romanticism, right? That's this comes true. from romanticism, right? It's, it's and a, then it got a, merged a bad- with – yeah. With therapeutic understandings of the human person, which were right. caught up with like movements in psychology and education from like John Dewey and then late, later social work fields in, in psychology and stuff like that. There's a whole therapeutic mm-hmm. – like does that make sense? And so yeah, part, and part of it too, um, Roseman argues in his, in his, in his book, um, Raising Kids by the Book, is that it also has to do with feminism, right? As female be- behavior and female intuitions became normative rather than half of the human experience – then parenting became too feminine, whereas before you might have argued it was too masculine. Instead of getting balanced out, it got flipped. Okay, what's right? confusing to me about one thing that you just said was that is that this liberal progressive Christianity, that while, while the focus was on the weak side or, or the the side of the slave, the side of the woman, the side of the oppressed or the side of the um, minority – the, the this is what's confusing me about the liberal Christianity thing that by what these people are doing as far as I can see is by being advocates for the let's just say like the weaker group well they've created a massive federal government that is the strongest group I don't know that that they say that they're actually trying to help the poor through this massive, strong, you know, <laughs> dictator-like force of f- federal government. I just don't understand. Like, all these things just seem backwards, all backwards and screwed up to me. Like, wh- wh- how, how could yeah. some? How could a liberal Christian say that they're actually being a liberal progressive Christian and trying to help the poor and fight against the – Fight against the man, or fight against the system, the the big the big strong oppressors by creating their own big strong oppressor. I know that it's like the Marx, it's like a Marxist because that's not what they're trying to create. They're trying they're they're not trying to create a big they're not trying to create a totalitarian state. What they're trying to create is a national mother. I mean, with the Democratic yeah, that, Party, what progressives are basically doing is trying to turn the state instead of a protective father. That has a strong military and a good economy, right? That can beat right. off the people who want to kill us and can make sure that we have enough money to live, right? They're trying to turn yeah. that like somewhat absent but powerful father basically into a devouring mother. 
right? Into yeah, like so- into a nurturing is- government that gives you everything that you right. need that takes care of you, and so on. Now, I think Democrats and progressives, and it's that have that want to harness that feminine spirit. There is a certain amount to which I think that's probably positive. Right. There, there but, is, and there, uh, there's a, but there's a version that becomes the devouring mother that does everything for you, that makes you the center, that like doesn't and doesn't require you to become strong. Well, and that's, is I mean, that's what happens to, when you push out the father. Yeah. Is there something to this that, um, so Annalise, the feminine, not feminist podcast, mm-hmm. uh, on Optive Network, she, she just released a podcast today with, with one of her friends, a guy named Will Spencer. And they talked about um, some of this type of stuff that we're talking about right now. And Annalise mentioned that a lot of the pagan gods were actually goddesses or they were, mm-hmm. they were females. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about that. It's like, d- does this play a role in that? In that like our totalitarian, th- this big government, this, this, I, I would consider it to be this God that the progressives are trying to create is a female. I mean, like the God of the Bible is a male, so there's, I mean, what does that mean? What, what does that the, the mean? God of the God of the Bible primarily uses representations that are male. I think we should say. I, well, I mean, I, I don't. Okay. I think that a lot of the, I, a lot I of the, a lot of the saying, engendered I, metaphors and actions of God in, especially in, in the Bible are masculine. I agree with that. Don't you However, think in that you're going to piss off a bunch of reformed, like conservative Christians by saying that I get what you're saying. That's like a very, it seems like a very CS Lewis thing to say. Cause you're, cause it's like outside of the realm of the natural world. And obviously God yeah. created the natural world. I get that. And, but like, um, he's he's masculine like like he he created the the he created adam first like paul talks about the females being the weaker vessel the, god is a it's, he's he's a more masculine figure than he's a feminine figure is that is that wrong because he's he's nurturing but he's yeah this is confusing he, so okay so i think i think one we need to recognize that God presents himself in the Bible as a spiritual being and a non-corporeal being until the incarnation of the Christ. And so God, the father does not have a physical sex. Okay. So if we say that God, the father is quote masculine, what we're doing is we're, we're ascribing that to a set of traits. He's not a man. Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah, yes, yes. that's important. Secondly, in Genesis one, we're told that human beings before you you say he's not a man, but yeah. Right. But, but like we've, but like not. language begs us to choose one or the other here. Right. And it's I true know. that God yeah. doesn't reveal himself as a quote, she, however, yeah. in Genesis one, when human beings are created male and female, he created them in his image. And so the first focus is mm-hmm. that both male and female are in the image of God. Now that includes the way women are women and not men. When women are women and not men, because remember in Genesis one, the, the, the woman does not represent the church. Remember the, the wife represents the church. As a woman, but as the wife. In Genesis 1, the man and the woman are both made in the image of God. And so the woman being a woman as being a human being in the image of God. So femininity is in the image of God. We don't need a female deity. God the Father or the the supreme deity has all the characteristics of masculinity and when properly exercised, all those of femininity and in him, they are a unity. He doesn't have to choose between them. Yeah. 
Okay, I understand right? that. My, 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 I guess what I'm thinking about and right o- now is also. I, let me add one more thing. Also, there's yeah. lots of places in the Bible where God uses overtly feminine metaphors. He doesn't call yeah. himself a woman, but he says like that Israel feeds off of his breasts and like a like a mother hen, you know, carries yeah. like nurtures her yeah. chicks. And there's right. a number of these metaphors where God intentionally uses a feminine like mm. characteristic to show yeah. himself. I think the main reason why God utilizes the masculine metaphor most of the time is because human beings struggle with God's authority. And that's usually the locus of authority is usually within the masculine figure. And secondly, I think it's because God wants us to recognize that he is the initiator and we are the responder. And, and usually that, that initiative energy is associated with the male, that the man respond, the man, the man initiates and the woman responds. And that's how we have our complementary unity. So, so, but how much of God, how much of God as a being, it, or sorry, how, how much of, do you believe that the natural world is an expression of God as a being? The natural world, un, uh, not, no. in, not infected by no, sin, really? The, the natural and, world is an expression of God's creativity. But when you say, quote, which, an expression which, of God, okay, that is an expression yeah. of his being, I would say no. Is an expression so of his creativity, his interest, his love, his capacities? Yes. The only thing in creation are... that we're explicitly told is a representation of God's being is God's idol. That is his image, which is the human beings. The only thing we're told is the image of God or the idol that is the representation of God in human in, in the in the creation is the human being, both male and female. I'm just, I just get, I I understand what you're saying. I just get, I, where I was trying to go with that and not that it, I know you, I know you're right. I'm just trying to finish. I'm okay with pissing off our female and male listeners. I just don't want to do it for the wrong reason. Yeah. I'm, this is just interesting because I'm trying to figure out like, because otherwise, because otherwise what's going to happen in parenting, Andy, what's going to happen in parenting is if, if we're, if we focus too much on masculine, then we'll flip it the other way as Christians. We'll, we'll do what fundamentalist Christians do who don't listen to their wives and their wives are like, look, our the kid needs this. Yeah. And, they, and they're like, no, he doesn't. Right. He just needs some more discipline. Right. And like, and the wife's yeah. like, no, I'm pleading with you. The boy needs to know that you love him and that you're proud of him. And the guy's like, he knows that like, I'm still here. I didn't leave you. You know, like that's what you'll get. And we don't want that for sure. Right. We don't want that. Like the reason right. why, I mean, think about this. Things flip for a reason, right? The reason why the feminine vision of parenting through feminism overwhelmed our capacity and understanding of how to treat children is because a crap ton of adults heard this idea. We got raised in houses where nobody cared about our feelings. Our feelings didn't matter. All that mattered was our behavior. And our parents just punished us. And that's bull crap. And uh, we should raise our kids where we care about their feelings. And a lot of people identified with that. They were like, yes, yes. And see, that's, that was true, right? You it's don't true, want a parent, but it, but it, you don't want a parent in a way where you don't attend or care about your children's feelings. Your, your, how your kids feel is just not the most important thing. That's a big difference between how your kids feel is the most important thing and I don't care about how my kids feel. Yeah. Those are very different things. Yeah. 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 You know no, I, mean? I think that and that's, women I tend to be more important. tuned to how the children feel and they will then come to their husband and they will, they will plead for their, the child and say, look, the kid feels this way. You need to do it. And you got to, and at that, that's one of the most important moments for a husband to listen to their wife because their wife is usually right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with all that. I think I, one of the things that I'm just, 
still, I've never conceptualized God as anything other than just like a, 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 a father man, which I, I, that's how he's described in the Bible, but he's also described with the feminine nurturing characteristics and things like that. You said that, that creation is an expression of God's creativity, which, which I would think would ultimately be an expression of God's I don't want, I don't know what your word to use for like his philosophies or ideologies. I don't know. I don't know how you use those words for God, but whatever he has, you know, those, his thoughts and ideas. And mm-hmm. I feel like the, the idea of the patriarchy, I know, even though it can be an expression of his creativity is, uh, you know, at the top of the patriarchy is the, 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 the father. It's the, it's, mm-hmm. that's who's the leader. He's a, and God Okay, so you, are you saying that God's like encapsulating all that is within the patri- in, within the healthy patriarchy? Like his characteristics are all of that, all bundled up in one? It's hard for me to think about that. I'm just thinking about it because it's hard for me to think about God not as a human being, which I think is my problem in this conversation. I keep thinking about him as like a person, not uh, not like a spiritual outside of this world being and that's really difficult to think about mm-hmm. and so i i get what you're saying because you're are you saying that god's god's created this world that has his creativity and it has all these natural laws and that's an expression of his creativity which is probably an expression of his ideas and and what and his philosophies mm-hmm. and theologies and whatever and then he and that is that is him as like a he is a and the things in this world are representations of what he encapsulates. The good things in this world are representations of what he encapsulates. So rather than him just being the pa- top of the patriarchy, he is all of the patriarchy in some sense, philosophically, like metaphysically, like outside of this world. I mean, I th- if that's a step forward in your conceptualization of God, that's great. Because, I mean, we're all – that's what we're all struggling with. None of us have like a like perfect philosophical – representation of God in our minds. Mm-hmm. We're all working with a conceptualization that we're trying to improve on, right? Are and, you, but do you, would you say that? What I just said, would you say um, maybe? I don't, I don't know. So, so I think one of the two things we could put together here is like in John one, it says that the, that God as creator in the person of the logos, that is the, the one of who with logic and clarity and philosophy, so to, so to speak, right? The logo speaks the world into creation. So, mm-hmm. so creation has this like logical, like, right. But in Genesis one, the emphasis is um, fertility, right? So God creates like, you know, he, he, he separates the, the light from darkness or whatever, but then he mm-hmm. starts creating living things and it's like, they just blossom out of control. And then the, yeah. the whole ocean just teems with living things. They're just like everywhere. And then there's yeah. all stuff crawling all over the earth. And so like, there's a sense that like God out of his logos speaks the world in the creation but he speaks it into a creation so abounding with life and fertility that life abounds. And then he looks at the abounding fertility according to his word, his logos. And those two in harmony together, create something that's beautiful. That's Tove. That's good. Right. The the word word, I just, for clarification, I think, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, that this was clarifying for me because I never knew what John one one meant growing up. Everybody's got mm-hmm. it in the beginning was the word, and, the word, and then you're like, "What does that mean?" Uh, apparently, word and logos. That word logos is a is a Greek philosophical term for like infinite wis- wisdom or something like that. Like it's in mm-hmm. the gods in like that's what that means. It's it it means word, 
but it all but that that's a philosophical term rather than like a literary term okay so the answer is yes and no right the word logos okay. is the generic word for word in greek now the philosophers oh, really? did okay. use it the philosophers did okay. use it as a technical term for the logic of something or the things inner wisdom Mm -hmm. So the question is, how much does John mean it that way in John 1? And the answer is we don't really know for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it depends on how far you want to take it. Like, So I, I think sometimes people like Jordan Peterson take it a little too far. Yeah. Or a little further than we, what we know it means. But it does mean at least word. It at least which, means that, which, which means a clear statement of truth based on knowledge. Right? That is, that is lo God's logic, so to speak. Right? It's interesting because so, that's dependent on um, – uh, language too, which is just weird right. that God's well in the New Testament is Koine Greek, so it's not High Greek. So words have broader meanings than in philosophical yeah. Greek, and so figuring out exactly what the means is actually harder, not easier. Now, but so this but, takes us back to this issue that, that like that like in creation you see the logic of God, which is traditionally associated with the masculine, mm -hmm. but you also see see the chaotic nature of the feminine in its best form, which is teeming fertility. The chaos yeah, of so yeah. much life coming out, right? And that's yeah. what creates beauty and life and verdancy and thriving and flourishing. And yeah. it's the union of the logos with that fertility, with that yeah. that life, that beauty, that growth yeah. that makes the creation great, right? Well, and, that's, so, that, and that's true in parenting as well. There is something that the, the yeah. naturally feminine brings and the naturally masculine brings that have different yeah. logics. And as men and women, we embody both. Not just one. I'm not only a man. I embody the full spectrum of humanity and my emphasis is in the masculine. My right. wife embodies the full spectrum of humanity. Because it's not like my wife doesn't have logical thoughts. She can't think. And it's not right. like I don't like fertility and growth and beauty. And you can and nurture. You can nurture something. I, I can mean, nurture you, things you, too, right? Yeah. yeah. So like, it's not like it's like these like two yin and yangs who are like completely separate and there's just a tiny bit of each. No, it's like there's right. a lot of confluence, right? But- Generally speaking, the average wife is going to be more attentive to right. the feelings of the child in the present, and the, the dad's going to be more focused on the competence of the child running into the future, and both of those are relevant for parenting, and they have to be balanced with each other in parenting that's good for the child, Tell which me is why I'm the drawing. male and the female, you, that's why it's so important to have a mother and a father. Right, and right, why, right. And it's also, right. it's also, frankly, why a gay couple isn't a great substitute. For, for, and for mom and dad. Yeah. You need the embodied masculinity and feminine. I mean, say nothing about fertility and natural fertility and all that, but just, it just isn't the same thing. Psychological. Tell me if I'm drawing correct lines here. The, the, this makes a lot more sense of then. I, I've been trying to figure out why when Andrea gave birth to our son, I like, while it was happening and then, while, you know, while he, you know, he, there's a part where he just kind of comes out and right. now there's a baby. And I was like, so overwhelming for me. I, like I started crying. I didn't know why I was crying. I just couldn't, it just felt really, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it was. And I was trying to figure out, you know, why that was. And then tying it back to women will be saved through childbirth that Paul says that. And I was like, th there's, and in the moment it felt like some sort of gospel metaphor as well, or some symbolic metaphor that like, the the baby coming out like Andrew was screaming because she's pushing a baby out of her. There's a lot right. of pain, blood. It's kind of gross if you like if you just look at it objectively, you'd be like, "This is kind of gross." Mm -hmm. But it, it's it's I think it's metaphorical for the gospel in that there's like the the necessary like blood, pain, and suffering is necessary to bring forth life. And there's like a there's like a 
it's just it's painful it looks painful but but then it brings forth life and then it's overwhelming which i think i can connect that to kind of what you're saying about genesis 1 where god's creating the world and all of these new creatures are everywhere and it's like it's probably for for human beings it's overwhelming like the world is overwhelming and god's just like he just like bringing it forth to life i mean that's what's so weird andrew and i keep talking about like when Titus came out and it's, and it's, you can't, you can't replicate that. I don't think you can replicate that feeling in anything else. Cause it's a freaking human that just came out. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just insane. And that's a, that's a, it's alive. And that's just like what God's doing in creation. He's just bringing things to life and put and pushing them out there into the, into the world. It's yeah. Just, I mean, in, in some ways a woman having a child is the archetype of labor. Like it's, yeah. it's you, you put your life on the line, you yeah. push with all your might, your own life is at like your life is at risk mm-hmm. to create a new life, right? Like that's why Paul right. says Galatians, you know, like my dear children, I'm laboring like a woman in labor for Christ yeah. to be formed in you, right? It, he right. uses it as a metaphor for the pastoral ministry. It's a metaphor for parenting. It's a metaphor for like, yeah. that's one of the reasons why I think it's a metaphor Paul uses in first Timothy too, because that is the death and resurrection most women like have to face and it is the most archetypal one in their feminine calling now that doesn't mean like if you're infertile or you don't find a suitable person to marry like you you can't be saved or you're not living in christ's fullness or something it just means that like it is this like fundamental natural representation of the nature of life that most women will go through or we need most women to go through does that make sense so so the way this relates to parenting is that Men have to be allowed to be men and women have to be allowed to be women and they need to work together. And, and since the 1960s at least, but this was true before that in a different way, more and more women have been taught to be distrusting of the masculine in the parenting to where they run interference when a dad is trying to pass with trying to pastor that or that is parent his children yeah. or the, the woman ends up taking the emotional health of the child completely onto herself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, As or if she, the dad doesn't give a crap, which sometimes he doesn't, but maybe mm-hmm. he does give a crap and he just has a different idea of what is necessary. Like I have, we, if we have a son, like, I'm sorry, but like my wife's not going to have as good of an idea as how to emotionally um, care for him because yeah. she's a woman. Like, I, I, and, and, and if we have a, a daughter, I'm not going to have as good of an idea. We need to, like her and I need to have a lot of conversations about, oh, yeah. like, I need to be healthy because yeah. he's going to take after me and her and I need to have a lot of conversations about, okay, what was it like for you growing up and this happened or what it was like for me or how should yeah. we do this rather than the, I think a lot of times this happens mostly with women. They just say, oh, well, like I'm more emotional, so I'll just do the emotional stuff. And it's like, yeah. You're not, you don't, that's why yeah. I when just there's, didn't there's take incredible well, ways moms can release the masculinity of their boys, you know, just yes. like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But like, I mean, I mean, just as simple as like when you wrestle with your boy when they're little and the mom is just like, do you have to wrestle that rough? Right. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. Or it's not wrestling. Like if, right. if it's not that's on the edge of, of what the kid can handle, it's yeah. not, it's not rough and tumble play. Or like, I used to just like. Jude and I just like slap each other. I'd hit him or whatever. Like, and Lexi would be like, stop hitting him. And like, he hates that. He's going to like, and Jude, and she's like, mom, stop telling dad to stop hitting me. Like it's part of being a boy. Like just quit it, you know? And like, now listen, there's, there's ways that dads despise their sons and how they want to get, give masculinity to them. And they really do browbeat them and dominate them and hurt them. 
right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the, the story with like, if the big rat fights with the little rat and doesn't let the little rat win at least 30% of the time, the little rat just stops playing. Yeah. Like there's a lot of dads that like they don't let their kids, their little boys win in rough and tumble play. And, and that's, that's stupid. That carries over. It carries over because yeah. these are the same dads who, you know, these are the same dads who I watched all the way growing up through like AAU and playing basketball, mm-hmm. who's, 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 that you you knew that their kids did not want to play basketball, did not even mm-hmm. like the game, but their dad would would not let them quit. He was trying to live that dream through them, and it, you could tell the kid had never gotten a win, like a quote unquote, like they never gotten a win. What if the kid wanted to be in a play? The mm-hmm. dad would have belittled him, probably. I mean, I saw mm-hmm. some of these dads in the way that they acted towards them. It's like you can't. It's not always. Uh, we're talking about physical ways to like rough and tumble and stuff like that. But I think you can do it in other ways too. I think you can do it with like music, with more creative things. It doesn't all need to be yeah, physical, you know? Yeah. So let, I, let's go over a couple of distinctions just in parenting model. Cause I think that this is really important for Christian couples. And I, this, this would also be true for you, like a single mom or something like that as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to, fo- I'm going to assume the family, which I know is like, it's not a, hundred percent. It's not even more than like maybe 55% assumption, but I want to start with the ideal. And then we move to what do we do if we're not the ideal, I think is important. So one, one distinction that's been used for years, and I think it's a helpful distinction is whether or not your parenting methodology is parent is a parent centered model or a child centered model. And I think first you should look at the metaphor of the home. Is your home a parent centered home or is it a child centered home? And my, my affirmation is that it should be a parent-centered home. Mm-hmm. I think that is more biblical, and I think it's much healthier for the child, and I think it's much healthier for the family. And by that, you mean the the home is the, the how the home is run uh, is if, dictated no, if, if, by the parents. So one way to do and, it is you just just draw a vertical line, and on the left side of the vertical line, write what percentage of the time you're functioning as a spouse. Oh, and on the other edge of the line, write down the percentage of the time you're functioning as a parent. And see what that number is, right? A right. lot of people who go to parenting seminars and are forced to do this, they write about 90, 10. Gosh. And Rosemond, John Rosemond says that it should be 25, 75 the other way. So when you say parenting, your spouse, you're not talking about like feeding an infant and things like that. Like, like right now, I feel like we have to spend a lot of time. Well, like it is. Feeding. I mean, some of this is like life stage dependent. Yes. Yeah. So later on, because I'm thinking about that right now, I'm like, we're one week in and it's probably like over 80% parenting. But this, I mean, but I'm also think, is that, is that parenting or is that just like making sure he doesn't die? Like, like we don't, I mean, we, we like change his diaper. But you can like, you can like go to the mall and have the baby with you. Yeah. We went to give it just enough attention that it needs, the baby needs, but you're spending time with each other and the baby is with you. Like, right. like yeah, even you're like you're driving in a car yeah. and it's like you get in the car and your kid's four and, the, and your kid's like, put on blah, blah, blah music, put on blah, blah, blah. And you're like, listen, this isn't your car. Right. Like, I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> we're going to play some good music that mom and I like, and we're going to talk. You need to be quiet, sweetie. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. you talk and play some music that you like, and you don't create this like precedent when the kid is two that whatever they yeah. yell for, they get right. And Pretty soon your kid listens to your music and like, you know, either tolerates like, it. Or different, yeah. And it's yeah. not like you don't play stuff for them sometimes, but it's yeah. like, you know, it's like these parents that get these kid CDs that they hate and then they play them over and over and over again in their car. And they, they're like, yeah. because here's the problem. 
when we, everybody resents everybody else. Right. Right. The kids still resent you. When you give kids yeah. their way, they don't love you and thank you. They, they get angry that they don't have more. And then your spouses start resenting each other. The, part of the problem with child-centered parenting isn't that the kids necessarily turn out to be idiots. Because if you're like a, like a virtuously Christian adult, your kids are going to lick up a lot of what they just see in you. And they're yeah. probably going to not be just total idiots. But you're going to have a miserable life as a parent. And your marriage is going to suck and you're going to resent your spouse. And you're not right. going to like being a parent. And I don't think that's the way parenting is supposed to be. I think having kids is supposed to be a blessing, not just because you get to bring a human into the world, but because it's a blessing. Like you don't hate it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that that, that just, that distinction, if you just get that distinction, right, this is a parent-centered home it is not a child-centered home. Mm -hmm. If if Uh, my family was a nucleus, what is a nucleus and what are the electrons rotating around it? Yeah. Right. A lot of moms holding their babies are the nucleus and the dad is the electron rotating around the outside of the atom. And it should not sure. be that way. The mom yeah. and the dad should be the nucleus and the kids rotate around it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, and well, that not only keeps the marriage together and makes parenting good, it also doesn't put inordinate pressure on your children and it allows that little electron to fly away when it's time. How do you, dev- how do you, uh, see this in yourself? I mean, it, like the people listening, uh-huh. I mean, people, I mean, when it comes, what I've found is that when it comes to, to kids, it can, people get, tribalistic they get mm-hmm. they get crazy a little bit and so how are people supposed to recognize when the nucleus is is the baby and the electrons are the parents how how do you recognize that and then i mean you've talked before about how you have to break your kids will in the first couple of years or you're kind of screwed in a certain way um oh, oh wait okay i need to correct that because that'll sound yeah. really bad okay so <laughs> developmentally uh, the yeah. first couple of years <laughs> yeah, that, that was is not when you break their wills. Mainly it's when you make sure they feel safe with you. Actually okay. being relatively attentive, not like hand and foot, but like relatively attentive so that your kid can bond well. So they don't end up with a reactive bonding disorder. Right. True. 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 true, true. So, yeah. so those first couple years, you basically want to be fairly attentive, loving the child feels mm-hmm. safe. They like you, you mm-hmm. like them. They can mm-hmm. tell you delight in them. Right. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. Then somewhere around two, they realize that they want to control you and they're gonna. Yeah. 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 Okay. And that- that's when you have to make sure that they understand you're the parents, they're the kid. Yeah. You got to break that. And so, there's lots of ways to do that. I mean, like spanking a kid is certainly not the only way to do it. Like just ignoring tantrums can sometimes work. Putting kids like in their car seat right. and like one parent being in the car while you finish shopping. Like, like there's all, there's a number of ways to like yeah. disincentivize fit right. pitching with kids. Right. 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 Like you like they, they pitch a fit in the store and they get like pasta and water for dinner. Yeah. It's just like, look, you pitch fit when we go out and things aren't nice when we come home. Right. You know, like, so there's lots of ways to do that, but Mm -hmm. like from, from two to four ish, you do need to break the terrible two deal where the kid thinks you exist for them. And you have to be like, uh, -uh. no, I love you. Mm -hmm. We belong to each other in a sense. Like, like Mm -hmm. I, I, you can feel safe with me and secure in our home, but I'm in charge of it. Not you. Mm -hmm. I know better. Mm -hmm. Not you. Right. So it's, that's that second stage of development where you're, where you do have to break um, right. the, the awakening of the rebellious instinct in the kid. Yeah. So if you don't happens, do that in two to four, you're in trouble. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of people who have it. So mm-hmm. is and it, you can do it later. It's just, you know, just a lot harder. I mean, it's like a ball rolling down a hill, you know? 
Yeah. Well, how, okay. So first, how do you recognize this? I mean, how do you recognize, I just feel like it's so hard to, it's going to be so hard for people to look, to actually kind of like step outside of their life and just take a look in objectively and see what's actually happening. Yeah. How do you do that? Okay. So part of the problem is, is that when you have a child centered home and you get kind of devouring parenting and you're just too involved in what your kids are doing every minute, you end up with too many rules and preferences. And so then you got, you've got too many rules. I think Jordan Peterson is right. You want as few rules as possible hmm. so that the kid isn't constantly breaking one of your little rules. You want yeah, as few yeah. rules as possible. They can be general and you want them to be few. And then you need to insist on them. And there's, mm-hmm. there's just a point around the age two. For some kids, it's like a year and a half. For some kids, it's like almost three. But they just get this crazy look in their eye and you tell them to do something. They just do the opposite. And it's not – they're not playing. They are saying, screw you. But then they try to make you think you're crazy. They will pretend they were playing. They'll pretend they didn't understand. And, and that's, goes that's a really difficult moment for parents because they have yeah. to trust themselves that, no, the kid does it's, understand. They're trying to manipulate me and I'm not going to go for it. It's difficult for parents because the vast majority of at least American Christians have no understanding of, of sin nature. They just think the kid's going to be honest and and nice and cute and cuddly and and while he's just manipulating them and lying to their yeah. face and deceiving them and it's like, right. it, well, this if, is where if, evolutionary psychologists are are basically say the same thing as Christians, because they're just going to say, look, the whole the whole biological world is a dominance hierarchy, and there's a point where your kids are trying to figure out if they're higher than you on the dominance hierarchy, which is right? super early on, which is yeah. crazy, and yeah. you've got to be like, you're not, kid. You're yeah. not higher than the other, right? So, like, there is a way to think of it that way. But, like, you want your kid to recognize there's yeah. a dominance hierarchy, that some people yeah. are going to look at them as prey if they're not careful, and they need right. to be tough, and they need to exert their will. That's good. Mm-hmm. But there's certain ways you don't exert your will, and there's certain people you don't exert it to in that way. There's right? one and th- wisdom and see, that's, and that's something a kid has to learn. So you can think of it as, like, their sinful nature coming out, but you can also think about it as a significant developmental lesson they have to learn. Yeah. And it's different than the one they just learned, which is, right. does mommy and daddy love me? Am I right. safe? Okay, right. I'm safe. Right. Now I'm going to start exploring. As I start exploring, there's conflicts of will. What do I do yeah. with these conflicts of will? Am I always right? Do I just get what I want? Right. That's an interesting question, son. Let's see. You know, like, <laughs> And yeah. so you've got, to, you've got to parent that. And you don't have to be yeah. punitive and like, and like harmfully like – attacking you're degrading but you need and, to be firm yeah. and you need to not right. pa- be racked with self-doubt well this is a problem i think that that a lot of millennial parents and, and gen z parents have now because we're i mean we're considered gen z parents but the the, the maybe they can do it for a couple times to be like no maybe they can say no a couple times mm-hmm. but actually following through i mean i've seen this all the time where kids kids know how how much they can push in what situations they can push and they, they do it. They, every time they're in those unique situations where they know if they push hard enough, they can get what they want, mm-hmm. they, they'll do it. And the parents always break. And that's just like, mm-hmm. I know it's, it's difficult cause it's like, you can't be a perfect parent. You're going to break and do stupid things sometimes, but yeah. how can you be more vigilant to all that? Well, I mean, there's a there's a lot of re- a lot of stuff here, Andy. I mean, the f- first thing is what most parents call discipline isn't discipline, right? Yeah. What John, what is discipline? John Roseman sometimes calls it yada yada discipline, where you talk at your kids and you think that is the discipline, 
right? And so the kid pretends to care what you think and they nod at you when you explain yeah. to them why the thing they did was wrong. And then you say, do you understand? And then they nod dutifully, they're right? Like, yeah. They don't give a crap. They're going to go right back and do the same thing again. And when you say, don't you remember we talked about this? They're going to say, no, I don't remember. Yeah. You didn't tell me that is what they'll say. And then you'll yada yada parent the same thing again because your kid's not a liar, right? And then Gosh. telling your kid what they did and why it was wrong isn't the discipline. Right, right, right. Right. If you think that's discipline, you're just wrong. You you're you misunderstood education for discipline. Now, should you educate your kid why the thing is wrong? Yeah. But education isn't discipline. Discipline is a painful cost. Education willf- is a privilege. For willfully engaging in antisocial behavior. Yeah. Right? And so that's this is, there's people who are my age who are still doing this too. Like what you just said. Yeah. Like where, where they're like Andy, I have they, caught myself doing it so many times. So no, no, many no. times. Are you? T- I don't know if we're talking about the same thing. Where, where it's oh. like, oh, you didn't tell me. You didn't tell me. I didn't know. You didn't. T- you didn't tell me. Yeah. I didn't know. But I, are they lying or are oh, they yes. not? Yeah, yeah, they're lying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on how advanced their so their like life lie or self deception is. You see, the more they lie to themselves and you yeah. don't call it, the more they become self-justified yep. in that. And then they don't even think they're lying. And then they think they that live, you've yeah. treated them unjustly because you called them a liar when they are a liar, even though they don't, they won't they don't let think, themselves believe yeah. that they're a liar. Right. Right. Yeah. It gets Gosh, That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So first of all, you have yeah. to actually do discipline. Secondly, discipline is supposed to hurt your children's feelings. Yeah. Right. It's not supposed to devastate them. Right. It's proportionate, but it's mm-hmm. like, it's supposed to hurt their feelings. If they cry, that's not a bad thing. If they say, I hate you, this is so bad to be like, okay, good. I'm glad I'm getting to you. Like it's, you know, you shouldn't really say that, but like, you know, that's what you're looking for. It should be some sort of affirmation that what you're yeah. doing is working in some capacity. Do, yeah. Do one you... biblical principle is um, a restitution plus 20%. Right. So like if you stole something in the old Testament, you had to pay it back oh, plus yeah, 20%. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like when you think about discipline, you're like, how much discipline? It's like they pay it back whatever they caused proportionately plus something mm-hmm. plus 20%. Right. And then you figure out what that is and you do the discipline and you stick to it and listen, you just got to stick to it. Yeah. And here's the thing, moms, ladies, usually you're the worst at this. You, you, you look at the husband and you're like, well, he didn't nap, especially when the kids are young. Well, he didn't nap. You run, you, you're, you run interference for your kid and you should not. Your kid does not need a lawyer. And the kid, at, I, they need they to look at the two of you and see that there's no space between you. Yeah. You are a hundred percent united. Yeah. The kid, you can see when a kid can see that it's, that their mom is doing that. They they can oh, yeah. like see that their mom is playing, playing the, their advocate or whatever. And they do um, not respect their mother for it. Oh no! Yeah. They don't Why think more you? of her. They just think think of her as a as an object that they can manipulate to get what they yeah. want. You're not helping your kid become a better person. So yeah, okay. So I guess this all kind of, in some way, leads to the question of, which I think is a question that a lot of people are generally uh, struggling with: what is the balance between compa- compassion, compassionate, uh, graceful? parenting and then discipline and kind of that hard love yeah. parenting because it, as you're saying it's not all one it's not all the other if you go too far on each side you're going to get a different type of messed up kid right. how do you balance this whole thing out uh, I, and i'm going to say 
if you know, because we only have like a couple minutes left before you have to go to your next thing, I would lean on the compassion side because I don't think a lot of people my age are having a hard time uh, having too much discipline. I think they're having too much of the compassion and, and passiveness. So, how do you oh. balance oh, yeah. those? You know what I mean. Yeah, I thought you were saying the opposite of what you're saying. But yeah, there's, there's what, what, what tends to happen, um, I worked with this person not all that long ago in a kid thing where um, we were working with kids. And this person was like very much on the like self-esteem, sort of like kind of progressive feel for kids. Like, you know, be nice to that, right? And what would happen is, is this person would be like really nice to the kids and kind of coddle them. And then they'd blow up. And they'd be kind of unkind. And I'd be like, why do you behave like that? You know, I'm like, ugh, yuck. Mm -hmm. And you see, I think it was because the person treated them like kindly and they didn't respond like that person hoped. And then they blew, they lost their temper. Right. Yeah. I think it's better to be like, no, I'm going to treat you a certain way. And I'm going to be both encouraging and demanding simultaneously. And I'm going to give you what you need. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be super nice and syrupy. And then when you spit in my face, I blow up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to demand from you what you sh- I should. I'm going to support you in all the ways that I can. And then I'm going to ask you to do what you're responsible to do. And if you don't do it, there's discipline for that. Right. And what I found was I was able to, I'm, I've been able in those kinds of contexts to keep a, a steady attitude and personality, mm-hmm. right? In that context, I was, I'm talking about coaching kids in sports. Yeah. But like you can see this in parenting as well that like, um, you know, if you yada yada discipline your kids, it's not discipline. If the mom runs interference, that doesn't work. What you want is the mom willing to hand her kids over to her, the husband. Hmm. And so he does whatever he thinks is right. Like for literally for generations, moms are with kids. And if the kid did not respond to grace, which the mom offered, she said, uh-huh. you wait until your dad gets home. Yeah. My wife always tells me when she was growing up, she was always, whenever her mom would say, okay, we'll wait till dad gets home, that that was like, you were scared. Like, she, she was scared, you know? Yeah. I mean, we were yeah. too growing up, and that's probably good. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is a fear that can only be achieved by male corporal punishment. Like, and if dad's going to come a- home and ground you, you're not terrified. You're just foreboding. Right. Like, there's going to be a punishment. I'm not going to watch fear- TV for a month. Right. Fear is not bad. I think that's another thing that these people, they, they, they certain kinds of fear. Yes. The fear of the Lord, I mean, is all throughout the Bible. That's one of the things that we should be fearing the Lord, obviously not in it, not like yeah. we should, shouldn't be pursuing him. Right. But because the, there are forms of fear. fear, there are forms of fear, like when parents just like beat good. their kids or just yeah. scream at them and belittle them that creates yeah. developmental trauma for sure. Right. Right. Um, right. And one of the one of the biggest problems with psychological research into spanking or corporate corporal punishment in terms of discipline with kids is they don't differentiate between those. So Roseman actually generally <laughs> wrote a book yeah. called To Spank or Not to Spank, and he goes through the research and he's like, look, there's hundreds of studies on spanking, and none of them differentiate methodology. They don't they don't look at like signs of abuse and then take those out into a different cohort. They don't look at he's like only two studies have ever done that. And basically they say spanking works about like everything else. It's just faster and easier and more immediate. So you can go on with your life. It has certain benefits, but he's like, it's not like it does just does not have the negative developmental effects that this, that, that the quote studies. And there are not at this point, thousands of them, but they're all done on the same assumptions. Yeah. Right. 
Because if some cohort of ki- people who are using corporate that. punishment are beating the crap out of their kids, those kids are going to have disproportionately negative outcomes. Right. And so spanking is going to look like a discipline that has disproportionately negative outcomes. Yeah. But it, if it's within a larger parental structure of a couple working together, love for the child, right. explaining, educating the kid on behavior – as well right. as disciplining them, not spanking kid every time you're disciplining them for sure, right? Only using it for like outright defiance or whatever. It yeah. has like it has no measurable negative effects psycho like psychometrically. But if you just like say, have you ever used corporal punishment on your child ever? And then everybody answers that question, then you've taken all the abusers into the spanking category. And now you've normed the statistics on those kids to everybody else. And so yeah, right. you're gonna get more negative outcomes. So spanking's bad. <laughs> Right. That doesn't even seem like a scientific. That doesn't seem like science. Well, if you're I mean, if you come from a post-feminist, like social science ideology, where all hitting is the same, like pushing a woman in front of a bus and pushing her out from in front of the bus is basically the same thing. You're pushing old ladies around. Yeah. Then, like all all violence is violence, right? I so, suppose I just have a, a higher expectation for academia i like i feel like right you know these like i was in a gun people. debate with somebody one time a, a lady who was of a more pr- progressive thing and she said listen nick like thirty thousand people in america get killed by guns every year and my response was okay two-thirds of those are suicide of the rest of them how many of those people should have gotten killed like how many of those were good kills there's also like the self-defense CDC says- or- 150,000 people are saved by guns in america every year it's way That's higher CDC- is it really Way higher than that, yeah. They oh, keep really? dropping it every year because they don't like what they found out when it was studied earlier. But the the estimates, like Janet Reno, like it. under Bill Clinton, their Defense Department, when they studied it, they put the number 800,000 annually. Annually. Wow. Yeah. Defensive gun uses. Right. Mm-hmm. The arguments yeah. against gun, and John, gun And John Lott, yeah. who, did this, who did this research, put the number at 2.3 million. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And I, well, that's- in 95% of cases where people defend themselves with a firearm, the gun is never fired. So when, when guns oh, are used by right. law-abiding citizens to defend themselves, it's peaceful. Nobody gets hurt. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's like the most effective means of stopping crime that's ever existed in the history of the world, other than maybe religion. And then look at the countries where they like took away – the citizens' yeah. ability to have guns and and see right. what they're what, what what how many people died at the right. hands. So of- what this means for parenting again is that like you need to have a reasonable understanding of what like what is discipline, what is a use of force, and what does it mean? How does that mm-hmm. function the way we understand our lives, right? And then as a woman, how does that make you look at your husband if your husband is a fairly masculine man, right? right. Are you are you are you looking at his masculinity as positively? as you want him to look at your femininity, right? Mm-hmm. And the answer should be yes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there is going to be some like interaction. Like there, sometimes the man is being masculine in some more unhelpful ways than the wife is because we all have our backgrounds as well too, right? But fundamental right. To, to a Christian view of parenting is that we are each other's helpers. Like we, we mm-hmm. are both needed. Both, of, both the masculinity and the femininity are necessary mm-hmm. to a well-functioning home, Fan, and yeah. specifically in parenting, both mm-hmm. nurturing, because like if you have a woman who tries to do 100% of the nurturing and the man tries to do 100% of the discipline, what you have is very confused and hurt children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the man has to do some very specific acts of nurturing, mm-hmm. right? Because like, like a young girl, for example, 
whether her dad says she's pretty mm. matters a lot more to her than whether her mom says she's pretty. Mm. Right? Like if your dad and your little your nine year old daughter goes, Daddy, am I pretty? Like that's the answer she's going to pay attention to. Not not your wife answering from the kitchen. Of oh, you're so pretty, dear, and you look especially good in that outfit. She tunes that right out. She's listening to her dad, and it's what, what she's going to remember for the rest yeah. of her life. I mean, I, I, like my my right. mom and wouldn't care if I said this, but she, she, I mean, her dad. I think like only maybe a couple times, but one time specifically, like call, called her a fat ass growing up, and she has mm-hmm. not forgotten that. Like at all. Like she remembers it and she's almost 50. Oh, Oh, listen, let me tell you one. Let me tell you one at my house. I have a daughter who asked me if she was, if she was, if she was really pretty. Right. Cause she felt like really awkward if she was young. Cause she was. And what I told her was, I said, darling, it doesn't matter if you're the prettiest girl right now, you're 12. Right. What's going to happen is you're going to mature. And like a lot of your kid fat's going to go away and you're going to grow six inches and you're going to look like your mom. You're going to be gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And what you need to work on right now is the kind of woman you are, right? Mm-hmm. All she heard was, "Yeah, she's not the prettiest thing. <laughs> yeah. And later yeah. she was able to admit that I said a lot more than that. But well, even then, like it wasn't a teaching moment. It was an affirmation moment. But I'm a teacher, so I taught. Right. Right. It's difficult for men because that's like a legit, that's like a logical well, because I wanted to free her. Wrong, technically. Yeah, you right. Wrong. I wanted to free her from the shackles of looking in the mirror every day as a twelve-year-old yeah. who was pudgy and go, "I'm not as pretty as the other girls. I'm not as thin as the other girls." And I would be like, "Look, when you're 23, when it matters, yeah. you're right. gonna look better than all those girls." But that doesn't well, but matter. What you darling, did is you reinforced you the that what you in were way, trying yeah. to get get out, out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was also my daughter that struggles more with her mental health. My other mm-hmm. daughter did not have the same experience with me that way. So part, mm-hmm. you know, some of it is like each kid, right? But yeah, you do have to be careful with sen- more sensitive kids. More sensitive right. kids need more sensitive parenting. It just It's hard to just, tell which ones is, are going to be sensitive or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't how do you how do you know cuz if you treat you you do uh, your best. sensitive kid, right? If you treat a sensitive kid with coming some of that heart more harsh hard love, you know, you're going to jack them up and if you treat a, a kid who needs more of the hard more uh, disciplined parenting. If you treat them with just all compassion, they're going to just take advantage of you. It's like, mm-hmm. it seems, yeah, this seems like it's impossible. Yeah. It seems I remember like hearing somewhere that like, as a parent, if you got it right, six to seven times out of 10, that's good parenting. Yeah. Hopefully. So like I, people who really want to be good parents and they're really trying. Yeah. They should be you able know, to hit that mark. Yeah, I'm like I, what I say is look, pursue godliness yourself and try to grow as a couple and be in the game parenting wise and mm-hmm. you're going to do fine, you know. And if you've got major psychological problems, yeah. Or if lots of people tell you you do, go get help right now. Mm-hmm. Right now. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're single and you're not dating anybody cuz it's also probably why you're not dating anybody too. Mhm. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Don't get married and have kids if you haven't dealt with your own problems, at least to some extent. I mean, it, it, not all of them. Yeah. No, I would just say deal with your problems and get yeah. married and have kids if you find a suitable person. That's true. And singleness, if, if you have, if you can work well, with that the chances you of you great. finding a suitable person is going to go way up when you deal with your problems. Correct. Okay. That is my experience as a pastor that the yeah. women, that the women who are single longer than they want to be, some of them realize that there's a reason mm-hmm. and they go after that reason pretty hard. 
And usually in less than two years, they're in a serious relationship. And then there are women who don't. And, you know, seven, eight years later, they're single. And Look, they're not I'm in a relationship. Prime example of a dude. And I'm really sorry if some of you are listening, that really hurts your feelings. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be helpful. Yeah. And, 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 and you may be single and it may, it really may not be you, but there's so, there's too many people for whom they're single and it is them and they won't hear it. Yeah. That I have to say that even though there are some people who I don't know why they're single, I just can't figure it out. You know, like yeah, if I was a single well, guy, I would have asked, I would ask them out, you know, and they're single. Yeah. I know who some of these people are you're talking about that mm-hmm. you. Some of them I think are picky. I think but, you're wrong about some of them too, but that's possible. That's just preference. But I mean, I'm one of these guys. I, I think I, I think I'm one of these guys who like tried to figure work on my crap. And then I feel like I became a more suitable person for, uh, for a wife. And then it came fairly mm-hmm. easily. I mean, we like started dating and got married within like two, <laughs> five months. So yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of people like for me, I did deal with most of my stuff. Before I got Until married. Until you got married. Yeah. Yeah. I was handsome enough and functional enough that I yeah. suckered Alexia into marrying me. Okay. Well, and she I didn't like deal I with her stuff something. either. You know, sure, she, didn't, sure. she didn't deal with her stuff either, but we were both yeah. functional enough that we got married. You know, we had a relationship. Yeah. There's some people, their problems r- repel romantic relationships. There's other it people who have lots common. of problems, but those yeah. problems don't repel romantic relationships. That seems right? more common now than 25 years ago. That might be. I don't know. Okay, we got to end this because I'm going to just, Aaron's going to get mad at me. Um, Yeah, we can do another episode, you know? Yeah, yeah, we can. And I will listen back through this one, figure out exactly what things we didn't cover because this is, I mean, well, I I I think going through developmental stages and like some of the like key ideas, Mm -hmm. I do Mm -hmm. think that Jordan Peterson's chapter in 12 Rules for Life is as good a non Christian version of one chapter of parenting as I've read anywhere. I mean, okay. I really do think that that chapter is quite good. Okay. And I would give that to Christian couples to read and talk about the like the chapter, don't let your kids do anything that makes you dislike them. Yeah, that's a good, he talks it, about that. Yeah. And I'm like, that it makes really sense. lacks a philosophy of like, why do you dislike what your kid is doing in yeah, situation yeah. X? And that actually requires, that assumes a bunch of things, yeah. right? And so I, I think it's a limited philosophy, but just generally operationally, what he says about children, I think is really true. And, and if your I, assumptions can be some basic Christian principles, if you mm-hmm. can bring that into reading it and just have that compound on top of your your biblical foundation, I think that yeah. that can be a good way of looking I think, at it. Yeah, parenting. I think he's a really good job of showing how the child-centered approach to parenting is actually selfish and child-harming. Yeah. And that we are lying to ourselves in a malevolent way to parent mm-hmm. our children in that way. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that's that. really helpful. But Peterson is also really careful to talk about like caring for children's emotions mm-hmm. and responding to them emotionally and caring yeah. about how they feel as yeah. well. And that, yeah. that, that's the thing I like. One of the things I like about Peterson is he's trying to be like truly balanced and hold multiple thoughts in his head at the same time. And I think he accomplishes that in that chapter. I do mm-hmm. think Roseman's book, John Roseman's book, um, raising children by the book or parenting by the book is biblical wisdom. The subtitle is biblical wisdom for raising your child. I really think that that is a good book on like, Hey, this is the parenting soup we've all been living in. Mm -hmm. You need Mm -hmm. to know that to be free of it. Yeah. And if you can get free of it, then I think there's lots of other parenting books that are helpful. Mm -hmm. The second Mm -hmm. half of that book is like 
fixing these problems. So that book by Roseman has a lot of positive mm-hmm. stuff in it that probably we'll cover in the next podcast or so. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I, I do think like reading that book that t- where he talks about post postmodern secular parenting and how since the sixties it's completely flipped the family around. Mm-hmm. Being aware of that dynamic is really important for parenting. So I would right. I would say his book is real helpful on that. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll do part two, um, hopefully next week or something like that. Uh, yeah, we could easily do 10 parts into these. Yeah, there's a lot here. But anyways, let's wrap this thing up. If you like yeah, this podcast, please send your questions, your um, your sure. violent disagreements. We want to hear them. Yeah, actually, I it would be interesting to have a, somebody with a different parental philosophy on yeah we'll try to get a we'll try to get a a mom on here too um what's the email people should send uh disagreements or questions 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 at optivenetwork.com questions at optivenetwork.com also you can just click the link in the description and it'll take you to email and then it'll let you did you tell the Um, audience yet that our podcast trended in austria we were we were top ten in Austria in in Christianity and religion and spirituality. We we're, we're making this is basically like a missionary podcast. I mean, we're going all over the world and and doing great things. Um, yeah. but uh, so I got to end this. Uh, if you like this podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five star rating, send us your questions. Um, I think that's it. We'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>